Investor Creator teaches both seasoned and new investors how to buy the right houses at the right price anytime you want. This podcast is about answering one question. How can you build a sustainable six or seven figure investing business that changes your life without sacrificing your freedom? If you want to know the answer, you're in the right place. All of this information is 100% free, so please subscribe to and review our podcast. Hey guys, welcome to Investor Creator, where I tell you the truth about what it takes to become a high-level seven-figure real estate investor. Guys, today we have a lot to go over, so we're going to jump right into it. Today, we're going to be talking about not how to survive, but how to thrive in a market shift, because that's the beginning of what we're seeing in the market right now is we're beginning to shift from an extreme seller's market to more of a balanced market. And how do we deal with that as investors? So we're going to jump right into that. But first, I want to tell you about the weekend that I just had. I just got back from Dallas, Texas, and I actually take this as a road trip because I really enjoy a 10-hour drive where it's just me and a couple audiobooks and a couple cigars, and by the time I get done with them, I'm there. So it really allows me to focus on myself and focus on my business, so I had a great time on the way there. But the purpose of my trip was to see one of my main lenders. His name is Manny, and he won a Lifetime Achievement Award as a note investor. So this guy, just to tell you a touch about him, he actually started note investing when he was 30 years old. He said, I didn't have a job. I had a little bit of capital. And so I started note investing. And so back in the 60s, he started in 1961. But back then, you usually had to have a pretty decent down payment to buy a home. So what would happen with a lot of new construction is that people would have 10% down on some of their deals They would need 20% down. And so what the builder would do is they would take a builder second. So the first mortgage would come in for 80%. The buyer would put 10% down. And then the builder would carry 10% of the sales price as the paper on that deal. But the problem is that most builders, that's roughly what their profit is anyway, is about 10%. So, you know, obviously it wasn't what they were hoping to do to get into the note business when they built this house, because that's a heck of a lot of work to just get a builder second on a transaction. So what happened was there's really a great buying opportunity in the market. So what Manny started doing was he would go in and offer 10, 20, 30% on these builder seconds. And so these were a paper borrowers. I mean, these were borrowers that got bank financing. And usually people are buying and selling a house every four and a half to six years. So he would get his cash back in that time and just got a tremendous yield. And the amazing thing about the whole thing is that he has taken his business and it has grown to an extent that his four children are all in the business. And now he has a grandson that's in the business. And so it's just a lot of fun to see a guy succeed to the level that he has, but not only in the business world, but with his family and just with his community. And he's just such a a nice guy. And so he's a very humble person. And it was a lot of fun to go down and support him in that. And so I came back a couple of days ago, drove back. And it's kind of funny because the drive to a place is always so much more fun than the drive back, but it wasn't so bad. And so I got home and spent some time with the family over the weekend. So we're going to be going over the deal of the day. And we're also going to be talking about how to thrive in a market shift. So let's go over the deal of the day. This one was kind of a funny deal. And I know what you're thinking, Brad, I can't imagine you of all people with a funny deal, but just stay with me and you'll know what I'm talking about. So about six years ago, 
we were really getting the the legs under our business. We were starting to have some success. And the, the toughest part in this business is getting enough operating capital to where you can begin to try different things. So you begin to try new marketing, you begin to extend your staff and all of that, and you begin to have success and then scale. So I was to that point in my business, and I remember I had a seller call. And so she said, hey, I'm facing foreclosure. I have this house. It's a 2,000-foot brick ranch, and it needs some work, but it's not in too bad of shape. And I need $40,000, which was my payoff, and you can have the house. So it's in an area that I felt comfortable owner financing. And so my idea with this deal was to take the deal and owner finance it out. And I was going to sell a partial for the $40,000 so that I didn't have any capital in the deal. But in six or seven years or so, I would have a free and clear first mortgage that was seasoned. And so that's very, very valuable. And so that's my plan. So I went to the house, very nice lady, and I looked around the house. The house needed some work, but it wasn't in terrible condition. It certainly wasn't the worst house I've ever seen at that point, and certainly not now because of some of the things that we have bought. And so I ended up purchasing it under contract for $40,000. So get the title report back, the title's fine, and we go to get a payoff. And we notice that the lender is a private mortgage holder from Houston. And so we get in touch with the guy and and I call him, it's no problem, and and say, hey, you know, we need a payoff to get your money on this deal. And he was no, not a very nice person. He really didn't want to give us a payoff. And I'm like, well, you know, if you want your money, then you should give us a payoff. And long story short, he just never would get it to us. So he ended up foreclosing. And so he sold the house, I guess, roughly for $50,000 to another lady. So I was super bummed because I really wanted this deal, and I, but I, I knew there's nothing that I could do. And so we, we just lost out on the deal. Fast forward to a few weeks ago, we get an internet lead from a lady and it said, you know, 123 East Main Street. And I look at the address and I'm like, I know that house. Why do I know that house? So I'll pull it up on Google Maps. I'm like, lo and behold, it's this house. It's the same house. So we have now a different seller, the same house, a different marketing channel, but we hope that all roads lead to us. So this is not the first time that I've ever had someone try to contact somebody else or whatever, and it still leads to us through a different marketing channel. But this is the first time that I've had a real opportunity to buy the same house from a different seller. So we go to the deal and the house is just a mess. I mean, it's a real mess. We have a kitchen that is literally falling in on itself. So I I knew pretty quickly that this is something outside of my scope of expertise because I'm not a general contractor that I would really want someone else to look at this house and make sure we're not buying just a major problem. So we get through the negotiation and she starts at 40 and then she gets down to 31 and then we end up contracting it for 21,000. And it was contingent on inspection. So I have my home inspector, who I'm certain has to be one of the most feared home inspectors in the Southeast because of how thorough he is, and said, hey, Scott, go take a look at this. You know, And what he does for us is he just goes and kind of looks at the major issues. So you know, if the, if the door's kind of creaking, he doesn't care about that. You know, We want to know about structural. We want to know about plumbing and electrical or safety issues. Okay. So he goes to this house and he calls me and he says, uh, Brad, have you seen this house? I was like, well, no, I haven't. He said, Brad, this is the worst house you've ever sent me to. And that just kind of made my jaw drop because he's been with me for about 12 years now because he was my home inspector when I sold real estate. I was like, Scott, are you sure? I mean, we have pictures. It's, It's not that crazy. He said, no, man. He said, this is a disaster. And so basically the problem is that through part of this house, there was an addition done. So in part of this house, you have the floor joists that are literally like two or three inches away from the ground. Obviously, it's a crawl space. 
But anytime you have that, so the problem with crawl spaces is moisture. So you have moisture coming up from the ground, and what it does is it makes the framing soft. So that's what's happened in this house. So the kitchen is literally falling in. You walk into the kitchen and you can't really even stand. It has a complete concave sort of look to it, and it's just a real mess. So we call the seller back. Here's a copy of the inspection report, the whole thing. This is what my home inspector said is 21, the best you can do on this house. And she said, no, basically I'll go down to 15. So we knew that 15 was roughly land value after we tore down the house, because if we have to, and I don't think we're going to have to, but if we do have to tear down the house and we're in a safe position. So there's a house that just pended that's smaller than ours. I don't know, six or seven doors down for 155,000. But this place is a real mess. It's a real wild card. And so it's a very, very high risk deal. So it's one of those that until we get out of it, we have to be in it as cheap as we can just to be safe. You know, and it's not only me, I have to keep my lenders safe as well. So with that, we bought the house. We're closing on it tomorrow for $15,000. But that is the first time that I have ever bought the same house twice. And I just thought that that was super fun. And what we're going to do, we're going to get the problems fixed, the major problems. We're not going to make this thing pretty at all, but we're going to make sure that we're not selling someone else a problem. And we're just going to owner finance it. So we're going to create a note. And from the way that I can tell, I think that we'll create about a $965 payment with our note, and that'd be a 30-year payment. And so the yield cash on cash on that is about 39%. So in other words, the money that we have tied up in the deal If we invested that cash on cash for the next 30 years, it'd be 39% per year. So if you take the rule of 72, which means that whatever your rate of return is, you divide that number into 72, then let's see what that would be as far as doubling the cash. So, I mean, we're going to double the money about every two years. So, you know, that that's not bad and that's a good deal and it's hopefully a safe deal, but we're going to jump into it and see. It is a safe deal, but we just don't know how safe right now. So that's kind of the deal of the day. And I wanted to share that with you guys because it was just a fun one. And I, I got super excited when I saw that address. I'm like, here we go again, because maybe I can write this wrong that happened six years ago. So a little bit of housekeeping before we get into how to thrive in a market shift. So as of today, we entered the top 15 in business iTunes. Okay, so all business podcasts, we're in the top 15 right now. And so that's a super great thing. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the messages. Appreciate the support. Appreciate the likes and the subscriptions. And we're going to keep real content coming to you from a real business as much as we can. So let's jump right into it how to thrive in a market shift. And I thought about calling this how to survive in a market shift, because from what I'm hearing from people across the country, that's really all they're hoping to do is survive. But, you know, with every problem comes an equal opportunity. And with this, guys, I am super, super excited for the shift because we're going back to business how I started, which was in 2010 when the market was in the depths of the recession. Nobody had an equity position. Nobody got financing, and it was just a super difficult market, probably the toughest real estate market since the Great Depression, and we did very well in that. So the reason that we did well, we're going to jump into in just a moment, but it was very matter of fact, and it was not by any type of circumstance created outside of the ability for us to deal structure in a different way. So that's what we're going to go over with here in just a moment. So let's talk about the market shift. So what we're seeing is a lot of news articles popping out. We're seeing realtors talk and builders talk about how things aren't selling as fast and all of that's true. There is a CNBC article that kind of caught my attention entitled Home Flippers are fleeing the market as their profits shrink. 
And so I thought that was interesting. And I could read the article to you guys. If you want to go see it, then just go to CNBC.com. I'm sure it'll be there. But the three main points of this article. So number one, flipping volume has been falling annually by double digit percentages for three months. Number two, in California, where home prices are highest, flips were down a steeper 22% annually. That's a big, big number, guys. And then number three, gross flipping returns in August fell to the lowest level in nearly seven years, according to their database. So with that, we're seeing that there is some trailing off in the market, that things are changing. And so we have to have a plan on what we're going to do to create success with our business. So we're definitely seeing a market shift. So let's go over the two things that have worked in the past five years that, in my opinion, are no longer going to work. And unfortunately, if you're an investor, then there's a big, big percentage that you're doing one of these almost entirely in your business, if not maybe two things, okay? So the first thing that's not going to work anymore is major fix and flips without built-in equity. What does that mean? What is built-in equity? So whenever we're doing our purchases, if we're not buying equity in day one, then we're not buying the deal. And so what that means is that we're in a super safe position for a market shift. So I'm all for forced appreciation through a rehab, but we cannot build our business on that, guys. We have to be equity buyers. And the equity position that we buy is in direct relationship to our ability to lead generate. Lead generation is deal generation. The more you market, the better the deals that you're going to get. There's no way around that. It is correlated one for one. It's going to happen if you market. But what we can't do is what I've seen people do in the past. So I had a a transaction. I guess this was maybe two or three years ago now. I guess about three years now. And so I bought a house for $50,000. And three doors down, there was a house that was pending for $183,000. So same square footage, same year built, very comparable, same neighborhood. And I was maybe thinking about owner financing it. And I got to the point where I was like, okay, we're just going to retail out. So it needed maybe 30 grand worth of work or so. I was working on that rehab. So the demo was about done. We got an offer. We weren't marketing the property retail or anything, but these two guys found me. They said, hey, we'll give you $132,500 for the house. And I, I couldn't believe it to the point that I thought that they thought after it was rehabbed. I said, well, you know, I'm doing this kind of a rehab and then the, the exit's going to be closer to 185, 190. They said, oh, no, we'll take it 132,500 the way it is. I said, okay. I ended up selling them that house. They put about $100,000 in rehab in the house. So they rent it probably after your interest cost at about $250,000. And so they sold it for 300. Now guys, before that house sold for 300, there had never been anything close to selling for above 190 ever. The 183 two doors down or three doors down was the highest comp that had ever happened in this market. And so they go and they somehow get an appraiser to go along with this and they blow comps out of the water and I think at the end of the day they told me they made somewhere around $15,000. Now guys, that is not investing. That is gambling, and that's gambling with other people's money. Did they make money? Yes. Are they going to continue to make money like that in the future? The answer is absolutely not. We have to buy equity in day one. So the fix and flip model, these major fix and flips without a built-in equity position are not going to work in the next five years. Do they work sometimes? Sure. Can you build a business on it? It's going to be tough. The second thing that's not going to work that has worked super well the past five years is the wholesaling and the assigning. So let's define what that is. So a wholesale deal is when I get a really good deal under contract. And instead of actually 
closing on the house and selling the house. I'm just finding an investor that wants to be in my position and I'll charge him maybe five, 10, 20 grand to take my position. And so I'm selling him the contract. Contracts are assignable in general, and this is a state-by-state issue, but in general, they're assignable unless they specifically state that they're unassignable. So with that, you can find a good deal, put it under contract, sell the contract. The wholesaler does not have any cash in the transaction, and they're making money. Seems like a pretty good deal until we have a market shift. So why isn't this going to work in the future? Well, the first thing is that the equity position of sellers is going to go down. With prices stabilizing and maybe coming down a little bit of a dip, then we have a situation in which the equity that people have had the past five years is not any longer there. So there was a point in the markets that I'm in where if you hadn't bought in the past 18 months or refinanced in the past 18 months, then in general, you had enough equity to sell a house to an investor. And at the end of the day, that's going to discontinue. So it's going to be really difficult for wholesalers to find these good deals because it's going to be to where even if a seller is super motivated, they don't have the equity that's necessary to sell to a wholesaler. But let's say that you get a good deal and you get it under contract and there's enough equity there to wholesale it. Well, the second problem with wholesaling the next five years is that the buyer pool is going to be going down also because the velocity of the cash is going to be going down. So if I'm a buyer and I've bought, I don't know, maybe two deals in my entire career from a wholesaler. So if I'm a buyer and I buy a wholesale deal, then I have to really look at, okay, you know, the market shifting and maybe six to nine months before I get my cash back. So do I really want to go in and do this deal? It becomes a little bit more risky for the buyers. Here's the wholesaler in a position where both markets are shrinking. The equity position on the seller's side is shrinking, and then the equity position on the buyer's side is going to be shrinking also, and at least the velocity of their deal. So they have to take that into consideration, which means more likely than not, even if they do come into the deal, they're going to be offering less. So we have to take that into consideration. So I've thrown some mud and I've said what's not going to work. Let's talk about what's going to work. The first thing that we have to do is stay out of debt. So I know that that's kind of fascinating for a real estate guy to say, I'm a believer in putting loans on properties that have equity positions. So I have no problem doing that. But we have to be really conscientious of the position that we're putting ourselves in at this point, because it's kind of uncharted territory. Now, I've been in it and I know what's coming, but it's not a position that many people have been in. So to feel better, to be able to sleep at night, It's an important position to control and have really, really smart borrowing practices right now. Really, really smart borrowing practices. The second thing that we have to do is create cash flow. I had a lunch with a friend of mine about two weeks ago. So this guy is a good friend of mine. I really respect this guy. And he's just a superhuman being. He does some lending. He owns some multifamily. And he does quite a bit of traveling. So in our conversation, he said, Brad, I cannot outspend my income. He said, there's no way I can spend more than $25,000 per month, which is about 25% of my income. He said, everything is paid off. I have very little debt. And I have some properties that cash flow. And I have my notes. With that, it's just, I can't do it. And this is a guy that does quite a bit of world travel. You know, I think about his position where his biggest problem, more likely than not, is where to invest his extra $75,000 per month and just how safe that is. But let's take it to a normal position. So 
how do we create cash flow in our business? So the first thing that we can do is if we have three to $5 million in cash, is we can go and buy rental property and maybe they're discounted a little bit, but they're good cash flow properties and we can create cash flow that way. So if you have three to five million in cash, you know, your days of worrying about cash flow are over, go and buy some property, let them sit, bury the cash in rentals, and you'll do just fine. But most people that I know don't have three to five million dollars in cash. So the main way that people are buying cash flow is they'll go to a bank. So maybe they buy a rental property and they put 10% down or 20% down or whatever, but they're trying to live off this little bit of cash flow. And the cash flow, more likely than not, is not real because of vacancy and repair. Many people swear that vacancy and repair over time, depending on the property, are going to eat up 20 to 50% of your cash flow. Your total rent payment, discount that by 20 to 50%, and that's what over time you're going to have as a net payment after vacancy and repair. So most mortgages, if you have a mortgage on a rental, you're not going to have real cash flow. And I've talked about that at length with rental property guys. What do we do to create cash flow? We can create cash flow very easy by creating notes. So let's talk about a deal that we're going to be doing here very soon. This is a transaction that we got the call from about two weeks ago. So we had this lady call in and she's facing foreclosure. She's two payments behind and she has a good little house that was renovated about four months ago. We bought this house for roughly $107,000. She owes $92,000 on the mortgage. And the retail there is about $155,000, but it needs about six dollars or $7,000 worth of work. It's at a 4.5% interest rate. Although we could retail out on this deal and maybe make $30,000, it really wasn't one that that's the best fit for this deal. So what we're doing is we're going to sell this house for $170,000 as is with a $15,000 down payment. And so we're going to finance $155,000. So we've taken the $92,000 subject to and we're creating a wraparound note and deed of trust of $155,000, which gives us a note equity percentage of roughly 63 or so thousand dollars. So our $63,000 note profit there is creating cash flow. And because the rate on the underlying is 4.5% and we're selling the $155,000 note at 9%, then we're creating $781 per month in cash flow on this deal. $781 per month. For some areas in the country, that would be like a, a free and clear rental property. How much money does Brad have in this deal? Brad has $0 in this deal, but it's thrown off $781 per month. And then whenever the person refinances or sells the house retail, then we would get our 63 or so thousand dollars in cash. But during the meantime, that $63,000 in cash is getting a really, really good rate of return. And it's an even better rate of return if you think about we would only make about 30000 after our holding costs, after realtor fees and selling costs and repair costs. Then it makes this a much, much better fit to take this and create the note and create the cash flow. Most people, if they had 10 deals like this, would be able to quit their job. They'd be able to weather any kind of a financial storm. And if you have debt, then $7,000 per month in debt payments is going to take care of a lot of payments for you. So let's talk about another deal. We'll switch gears on this because you may be thinking, well, Brad, you had $63,000 in note tied up in that. So maybe that's just not an average deal. Maybe that's a really good deal. 
So this is a different transaction that we have bought, and we're actually closing on the purchase and sale of this this Friday. So here at the end of the week, we bought this property for $135,000. It was behind on payments also. We were giving $0 in cash to the seller. And what made this deal look like a good deal is that it had a 4% fixed rate. So the PI payment on that $135,000 was $644 per month. So fast forward, we sold this deal for $155,000 owner financed with $10,000 down. So the $10,000 down payment goes to me. So that's part of my profit. So that's what I get for putting the deal together. So we financed $145,000 to our buyer at 9%, which is $1,166 per month. So on this deal, it's not as good, but we're still making $522 per month in cash flow. So how much money does Brad have in that deal? Zero. How much debt does Brad have in that deal? Zero. I get $10,000 for putting the deal together and $522 per month on a deal that most people could not put together anyway. You think in your mind, in these two deals, we created $1,303 per month. And both of these deals have come through my system in the past 30 days. And these are not the only deals that we're doing this way. So we'll probably create somewhere around $2,000 per month in passive income this month, which is a pretty good position to be in and something that we're focusing on more because of this market change. Guys, neither of these deals would I have done exceptionally well on and if I decided to put these on the market retail. And because of the market shift, that's what we're looking at doing. So in any town, think about your town right now. Think about how many houses are on the market retail. So if you're in any major metro, then it's in the thousands, thousand houses on the market. Think about how many owner-financed houses are in your market right now that if you had a down payment that you could go and buy owner financing. Well, usually it's less than 50. In my markets, it's less than 50. That includes us, which is probably about 25% of that market. So if we are going from a retail market that is going to a situation where selling a house is difficult and equity is going down, so buying the houses are going to be more difficult to buy with equity, retail equity, and we switch our focus from that to taking down deals that maybe are decent retail deals, but not the best, to deals that we couldn't take retail anyway, and we create financing for other people then what does that do? So especially this last deal, there's no investor that would touch this deal without knowing what I do. So $135,000, you sell it for $155,000. Does that ever make sense retail? The answer is no. So we're creating financing. We're creating opportunity for buyers that have cash and cash reserves that maybe they have a credit score issue or they have a difficult time proving income, but they have cash. Our average down payment is actually $25,000. We're taking these houses from taking them retail, which is becoming more and more difficult, to taking them to owner financing, which is a different market entirely. It is untapped. In many places, it's untouched. And it is much, much easier to sell a house when there's built-in financing and you're creating cash flow to weather this market shift. The last thing I want to say, if you take 10 real estate leads, think about 10. How many people can sell you a deal that you could take retail? How many of those houses as a retail fix and flip person or a wholesaler can you buy? You can probably buy two to three of them. The difference is we can buy all 10 and we know how to make money on all 10. In almost every circumstance, if there's motivation, we're going to buy that house regardless of the equity position. Guys, I hope that makes sense. Go check out that CNBC article. If you have any questions, feel free to add me on Facebook and ask me a question. I'm happy to do that for you guys. 
Again, thanks for the positioning in iTunes, and I hope this makes sense. Guys, I want us to be able to weather this situation and not only survive, but to be able to thrive in these changing market conditions. And you can do it if you find another way. You have to find a better way, which is creating notes and creating cash flow and taking houses with owner financing. 